Let's pray. God, we thank you for the eternal word. In this world, God, when so much pain, so much hurt, you have saw fit to call us and adopt us into your family. We're so grateful. God, I thank you that you gave us so much. You gave us your eternal word. You gave us your son Jesus to navigate the pain and the heartache that we see all around us. You have raised us up, God, in this community to be ambassadors for your precious son Jesus. We present ourselves to you, God, that we might be salt to this community, that we might be light to our beloved Shriver and the surrounding community. I pray this morning that you would speak through me, God. Just use my mouth. And would you be exalted? Would you draw men to you? In the name of your son, Jesus. We all say... Amen. So it's been quite a few years, I don't know how many years since I preached on a Sunday morning. Been uh, able to teach on Wednesday nights and that's been a true blessing to me. But uh, it's been a long time. I probably, I was trying to count hundreds of times, if not thousands, that I've preached God's Word. So I got a little experience, and I'm still a little nervous. Not really nervous. My life has been a journey uh, the last five, six years, uh, being redirected by the Lord, and I've been studying psychology. Psychology has uh, completed a degree in Christian counseling from Liberty University, a degree in substance abuse and addiction. So that's kind of what I've been immersing myself into for the last six years. And so naturally a lot of that comes out of me. Uh, And one of the things we're going to look at this morning is, I guess you could say, a philosophical psychological question. In the 1950s and the 1960s, there was a movement in the discipline of psychology that shifted the culture that we live in today. And I would say to each one here, as someone who has studied the behavioral sciences or psychology for so long, that psychology is inherently philosophical. So to say it is a pure science would really be disingenuous because psychology is always going to have a philosophical nature to it. If we get into purely uh, studying the science of the mind, then we can truly do that. But when we bring in psychological theory, it's going to be philosophical. And there have been many movements in psychology. Uh, Watson believed that our behavior is pretty much learned by modeling and by rewards and punishment. And those rewards and punishment direct a child into the way that they're going to behave. And that kind of moved into the Freudian uh, psychoanalytic theory, and that just went way off. And then later on, we saw the cognitive theories, where behavior was based on how you think. 
And that moved to crazy things like existential philosophy. But in the 1950s and 1960s, some names you might recognize, names such as Carl Rogers, Eric Erickson, Abraham Maslow, these guys developed a new theory called humanistic theory. And that humanistic theory sees behavior in a whole different light. So we believe in, or we don't believe, but we we conceptualize behavior as being a biopsychosocial model. So, and I like to add theology to that as a Christian counselor. So it's biological. I have genetics that are going to predetermine some things about myself. It is psychological. So that is the way I think, the way I feel, my emotions, my will. And then it is social. So its behavior develops in the context of my family, the systems that I am involved in. So the biopsychosocial model, and we Christians add the theological mode to it. But Carl Rogers, Abraham Maslow, Eric Erickson, and many of these guys really introduced something that was totally unique. The humanistic theory of human behavior. And the humanistic theory of human behavior, just to like simplify it, says this. It stresses that human beings are inherently good. That we, that there's something in us that deep down inside that is inherently good. And if we can just get enough counsel and just enough coaching and enough modeling and enough encouragement, that good will rise to the top. And that human behavior is really uh, motivated by our basic needs. And so our basic needs dictate how we behave. If you want to know why your kid's behaving a certain way, then look at what their needs are. And so this is humanistic theory, right? So y'all with me? And I promise you, I came here to preach God's word this morning. There's a problem with a theory that stresses that human beings are inherently good. Why is that? Because the weeping, weeping prophet Jeremiah said in 17 and 9 that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. He's speaking about me and he's speaking about you. And King David said in Psalms 51 and 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin did my mother conceive me. He didn't mean that his mom could committed sin to conceive him, but that from the moment of conception, he was altogether sinful. And if you've ever taken a child home from the hospital, you will realize just how sinful they can be from the very outset and manipulative. So, Humanistic theory clashes with biblical truth. So this guy, Eric Erickson, if we can take a look at him, he taught at Harvard. He was a German 
uh, and he developed a brilliant model of developmental uh, behavior. How our behavior goes through developmental cycles. Uh, he saw development as a series of crises that we go through. And our focus is that fifth developmental cycle. It is a time where they're with you, Pastor Dom, at Elevate. And so Erickson conceptualized these crises, and especially for adolescents, as going through uh, identity versus role confusion, a quest for identity. I need to figure out who I am. And if I don't figure out who I am, I'm going to be confused about who I am and I'm going to adopt roles that maybe come through peer pressure or just uh, by uh, absorbing the roles that are are given to me, what people say about me. So he said that a, a teenager needs to learn who they are or they're going to live a life of confusion. That is... A meta-philosophical question. So that's, remember I said psychology is philosophical. And metaphysics will ask these questions. And one of them is, who am I? It's related to, uh, what is life all about? So as adolescents are going through this developmental stage, they're moving away from... Uh, being dependent on their parents so much, they're moving towards autonomy, what we call differentiation. Just, I want to be a part of my family, but I also want to be separate. I want to be unique. So they're, they're trying to find an identity of who they are. So Erickson said this. We look at this quote. He said, In the social jungle of human existence, There is no feeling of being alive without a sense of identity. Now, I would say this. That is a theory. That is a theory. In the social jungle of human existence, there is no feeling of being alive without a sense of identity. Theory. But let's look at truth. And this is what Paul of Tarsus would say to him. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. In today's text, in the Gospel of John, as we continue to study the eternal word, I want to explore who we are. And we're going to see it in a great example from a great man who knew the answer in his life. So without further ado, John chapter 3 and verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim. Because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. 
for John had not yet been put in prison. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. So as we proceed in this powerful book that God has given us, the Gospel of John, first thing out of the box is after this. After what? After what Pastor Ben preached on last week. This tremendous encounter that is so well known, Nicodemus coming to Jesus by night with his questions. And what a powerful discourse that takes place there. And we get to one of probably the most known verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. So after this, after that, we see Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside. So they left the city Jerusalem, he had been there for the Passover, and now he has returned to the countryside, the Galilean, or the Judean, that is, countryside. So we see that uh, he remained there with them, baptizing, baptizing. So literally, remain there is very important. It says he was spending time there. He was Spending time there. There's, in the original language, there's this sense of, we use the term rubbing shoulders. He was rubbing shoulders with the people in the countryside, with his disciples. We see it in an imperfect tense, which is just a fancy way of saying that he kept spending time there. It was a top priority for Jesus to spend time with the people to spend time with the twelve. He was discipling. Do you know that discipling requires time? Pastor Ben knows that. He put us through 14 months of it. It requires time. Discipleship requires a commitment. And Jesus took the time to do it. He took the time to do it. And he kept spending time. And they kept coming. And they kept coming. As he spent time, we see the people were coming and they were being baptized. So in the midst of this context, something happens. It brought on a debate. It brought on a dispute. And why do I say that? Look at verse 25. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. So it brought on this uh, question or this discussion. And in fact, I would say that we need to know that the gospel is a sword that raises questions, debates, arguments, and controversy. In fact, those words are words that I pulled from different translations of this same verse. So it was not just a discussion. That was a problem. And so we see that some of John's disciples and a Jew began to have this argument or this debate or this controversy over purification. Purification was a big deal. In fact, 
just about anything can be a big deal for us when it comes to our assumptions and our biases and our belief system being challenged. And that's why Jesus said in Matthew 10, do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've come not to bring peace, but a sword. But a sword. In a search for who am I, sometimes God's word, sometimes the Holy Spirit, sometimes this gospel will come like a sword and it will cut and challenge my beliefs and my assumptions and the things that I have been told, my core values. It will challenge it all. What do you mean I'm not inherently good? What do you mean my precious little baby is not inherently good? It will challenge that. And so debates will come. And this debate just happened to be over purification. Purification was a big deal to some religious Jews or to most or to all religious Jews. In fact, just a chapter before in John 2 and 6, we saw that uh, when Jesus performed his first of all miracles, there was six stone jars, right? There for the Jewish what? Rites of purification. Rites of purification. Each of them holding 20 to 30 gallons. That's a lot of water for purification. But purification was important to the Jew. To the religious community. And washings, all different types, right? So it was important to them. This was a big deal. And so there was a debate over this idea of purification. And we have John baptizing and we have Jesus baptizing. I don't know if they couldn't put their mics on at the same time or what. But it's like we had in the minds of John's disciples and this unknown Jew some type of debate going on about purification. But was that what it was really all about? Now Jesus was teaching so much. And we will see as we go on that purification is so important to what John was doing and to what Jesus was doing. Because we know that through the eternal word, we are being washed by the cleansing of this powerful word. It is changing us. It is transforming us. It is purifying us. And Jesus turned that water to wine just as we just took the juice and remembered the precious blood that was shed for our redemption, which brings that purification that is so important. So we see that purification was very important to them. And there was a prophecy in the last book of the Old Testament that really pointed to that. So we look at Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1. And in Malachi, a powerful, powerful prophecy behold i send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me and the lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight behold he is coming says the lord of hosts but who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears for he is like a refiner's fire, 
and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. So did y'all, did y'all catch that? He's a purifier. So this prophecy is speaking of the two men who are now working together in the Judean countryside. John and the Lamb of God. So we see this issue of purification and we assume it's related to baptism. This idea that the physical act somehow brings purification about, right? Somehow it equates to purification because the context is baptism. And we see Jesus mentioned in Malachi as a refiner's fire. A refiner's fire. Someone that takes a precious metal and burns it. Subjects it to intense heat to burn out all the impurities. And a fuller soap, which a fuller is a launderer. When I was in Japan, I used to have this uh, great uh, service from a little old lady called a mama-san. And mama-san did our laundry. So it was awesome. Just leave your laundry and come back and it was done, folded, pressed, everything. So the fuller soap, we see this this idea of bringing about purification in our lives. And Jesus truly is a purifier. He comes and he purifies. Uh, Pastor Ben said last week that the Christian life flows from the inside out. And I would add to that that gospel purification flows from the inside out. In Matthew 3, in verse 1, it's a long little section right here, but I think it is so important to what, to this whole context of John and Jesus. So it says, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. This was his message. Repent! Repent! For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, John wore a camel, a garment of camel's hair. So try to get this picture in your mind, right? John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist and his food was locust and wild honey. Hmm. Tasty. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. 
Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I. Whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. What is going on here? What a powerful section, right? What a powerful section. And so they come, these disciples come to John. They're in this dispute with this Jew. And they're a little perturbed. They're getting a little territorial. The question is, why is Jesus on our turf? In fact, isn't it strange that they didn't even mention his name? They had to know who he was. He was famous. His fame was, was really building and growing more and more each and every day. So we see this territorial nature. And do you see this uh, question of identity in our text in Matthew where it says, Do not presume to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. See, our identity can be so tied up in just our genealogy. In our culture. That's where we develop so much belief system. And John is telling the Pharisees and the Sadducees, don't assume that you are Abraham's children. They were latching on to that identity. And we see a distinction made in verse 11 between, John makes the distinction between himself and Jesus. He says, I'm baptizing you with water for repentance. But there is one greater than I. And I'm not even worthy to hold his shoes. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So he himself makes this distinction. He's saying our baptisms are different. The question of identity, who am I, it challenges my assumptions. It challenges my biases. It challenges my morality. It challenges my values. It challenges my beliefs, my schemas. It challenges my very worldview as I search for my identity. It raises questions, debates, arguments, controversies. But for those who believe, there comes a season of change. And we see that in John 3, verse 26 through 30. Who am I? There has to be a season of change. They came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, He is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing 
unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. So there was a debate. And really in verse 26, we begin to see the motivation behind it. Jealousy. Envy. Who is right? Which is valid? What, what about purification? This is our territory. Rabbi, what are you going to do? That's, that's basically what I see right here. And in verse 27, John answers, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. God's in charge, guys. That's what he's saying to his disciples. He's saying, what are you talking about? God is in charge. God is in charge. You guys, the gifts that you have, I need. The gifts that I have, you need. But regardless, I didn't get my gifts on my own. And you didn't get your gifts on your own. It is the Holy Spirit who gives the gifts to each man as he wills. And we need each other. It is God who calls. It is God who sends. It is God who equips. It is God who ordains. So John is just calling them on the carpet. Listen to yourselves. You can't receive not one thing unless it is given to you. From heaven, You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Jesus said about John in Matthew 11, he said, Truly I say to you, among those born of women... There has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. And I often look at that and I was like, why? That's a pretty powerful statement of all, the, of all the people we could talk about in this Bible. Jesus said of him, of those born of women, there's never been greater. He was so humble. He saw the big picture. What's happening here? This is an, a pivotal moment in history. What is happening? We are seeing the advent of a new dispensation. So you could say that John serves as like a hinge on a door. And we are closing one era, the Old Testament era. And the New Testament, the new covenant is on the horizon. It's right there. It's right there among them. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's time for something new. There's a new moment in history. And John is right at the center of it. He's this hinge closing this dispensation. He's the friend of the bridegroom. He's not 
the bride and he's not the, the groom. He's a friend of the bridegroom. He's the best man, if you will. And he rejoices greatly at what is taking place, the advent of the dispensation of grace. The beginning of the new covenant. So John has a clear grasp of his identity, his purpose, his meaning in life. He sees it and he says, what I have, it's not of myself. I didn't discover anything through some deep uh, self-actualization. It's been given to me by God. My identity is in God's plan. We see in John 1, 6 and 7, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness. This was his identity to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. And if you're sitting here today, your identity in Christ is to bear witness to the light. We are ambassadors for Christ. John 4 and verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. This is where I think you're going to pick up next week. Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, we see that he moves on. But the point is that the Pharisees even heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. And John says, he must increase and I must decrease. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 10 I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, and that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So we see that Paul is, is dealing with this same thing. Uh, how does this happen? This, this, this unity, he says, I, I want you guys, there's divisions. I want you guys to be united. The same mind, the same judgment. A common identity. How does that happen? How does that happen? And we see that Paul states what his identity is. He knows his true identity, doesn't he? He says, he didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. There's seasons. This same Paul, who knew his identity, was once Saul. John 3, verse 27. A person cannot receive even one thing 
unless it is given him from heaven. And in that, we find our identity. This guy, William Baxter, or was it, uh, is it William Baxter? Did I get that wrong? Richard Baxter. I knew when I said it, that wasn't right. So he said this on his deathbed. Now, this guy was uh, a great uh, reformed theologian in the 1600s. On his deathbed, when someone was remembering the good which many had received by his preaching and writings, he replied, I was but a pin in God's hand. And what praises do a pin? 1 Corinthians 4 and 6. I have applied all these things to myself and to Apollos for your benefits, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Matthew 21 and verse 25. First part. Jesus even asked that same question because of this debate. He knew how powerful it was when they were trying to get him to, to answer a question. He said, well, you answer this question. And if you'll answer my question, I'll answer yours. And he said, the baptism of John. Where did it come? Was it from heaven? Or was it from man? And they refused to answer. You see, answering the question of who am I, establishing our identity, it it creates a dissonance within, within us. This conflict within our own minds, this inner debate and turmoil and struggle about not just with others, but about... it causes questions, arguments, because there are seasons of change and it will, it will necessitate a season of change in your life. But a truly satisfying, satisfying search can only come through a realization that I am innately sinful, that I am born under a curse that I am altogether lost that I'm woefully self-centered and selfish and poor and miserable and wretched and blind but God who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us when we were dead in our trespasses and sins made us alive together with Christ. I find my identity as I am immersed in Christ. John 3 and verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all, He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, 
that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. I find my identity as I am immersed into the Savior. He must increase, John said, but I must decrease. That's some, so humbling, isn't it? That's so hard. I don't want to decrease. I want you to see me. That's hard. I want to be seen, but that is the flesh. Paul would say to live is Christ and to die is gain. In 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 5, he, he would say to the church of Corinth, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. He must increase. How does this happen? How do I live that out? Romans 6 and verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our self, our old self was crucified with him, with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. This is so powerful. And I feel like I'm rushing because I know y'all want to go. But this is so powerful. And, if you, and I just pray that God would give you revelation into what Romans 6 is saying right here. That it is so powerful. If you want to know what your identity is and who you are as a Christian, this is it. This is it, brothers and sisters. Have a revelation of that. What is baptism? Well, I would just boil it down to the process of immersion and immersion. Or emergence. I want you to think about that. We're immersed. Baptism is to be immersed. I'm immersed into his death. I am immersed into his burial. I am immersed into his res resurrection. I am immersed into Christ. It's illustrated best in the word of God. In Galatians 3 and 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. In Colossians 3 and verse 1, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. You don't need to find your life to, 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 find, to have some type of revelation of who you are. You need to lose it. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. If you don't like that, you might not like this gospel. It's not an easy decision to make. It's not a light decision to make. 
But it's the only decision to make. In Galatians 2 and 20. I have been crucified with Christ. How does that happen, brothers and sisters? Spiritually, I'm immersed into his death. I was crucified with him. It is no longer I who live. That's my identity. It is no longer I who live. But Christ who lives in me. That's my identity. Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. John 3 and 36, finally. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains in him. And John puts a bow on John chapter 3. John the Baptist puts a bow with this powerful scripture. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But if you don't obey the Son, you shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. What a sobering ending to a powerful chapter. And notice the emphasis is on what? It's on believing. For God so loved the world that whosoever believes. And John said, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Believing precedes purification. Believing precedes baptism. And it brings us to this point of a total uh, revelation of who I am in Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5 and 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I would say to Mr. Erickson, he must increase, but I must decrease. And I would say to Mr. Maslow, rather than self-actualization, I am seeking Christ-actualization. We'll close with this. And I, uh, I, I stole this from your very own website. If you are a believer in Christ, water baptism is an act of obedience to the Lord. It is also a public declaration to the world that you have died to your old flesh and have been raised to new life in Christ. If you have not been baptized, we would love you to be a part of one of our special services. Living Word. Let me get it right. Living Word. Homa.com. So you can go to that website and to that very page and there's a little thing you can click on if you're interested in water baptism. So we invite you, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, this is the greatest next step to publicly showing your family, this church community, and the community at large that you 
have identified in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We invite you to sign up. And if you're not a believer, you need to talk to one of us. We want to pray with you. We want to expound the gospel more clearly to you because it is the greatest step you will ever make. Thank you this morning. Let us pray. God, we thank you for the eternal word. We thank you for the realization that I can have your identity. I don't have to have my messed up identity. I can put on Christ. And I have put on Christ. And we have crucified the flesh and affections and the lust thereof. We belong to you, Lord. Our life is hidden in you. I pray, God, for those that are struggling to understand your word, that your spirit would give them revelation. And I pray, God, for those that are here, that spirit's tugging on their heart and they want want to give their hearts to you. God, just motivate them to find someone in this church that can share the gospel with them. Help us to go out this week and be the light that you have called us to be, the ambassadors that you have called us to be. And to shine that you might be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Love you. Thank you.